Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And today, as you know, is New Year's Day. It's also the eighth day of Christmas. Uh, and so, yeah, we still have four days of Christmas after this, right? So it's still going strong. So um, I wanted to talk today about change because obviously with New Year's Day, everyone's making resolutions, thinking about how we want 2023 to be better. Uh, but change is also an, an integral part of the Christmas story. Uh, we love, right, that the Grinch's heart grew three sizes on Christmas Day. We love that he changed. Uh, we love that Ebenezer Scrooge has a genuine change of heart in a Christmas carol. Uh, we love that the, uh, the, the big city gal in the Hallmark movies uh, has a change of heart and realizes that she's just a small town girl living in a lonely world, right? I mean, we, we, love, we love the Christmas stories that show us that someone can change and that can, they can move away from the, the consumerism and the com- commercialism and the selfishness and, and move into truth and joy and hope. Like, we just, we love those kinds of stories. Uh, but, but I think also, in acknowledging that Christmas stories are about change, that New Year's is about change, we also have to acknowledge that there are people in all of those stories who don't change, right? Whether it's Hans Gruber in Die Hard, who, who definitely does not experience a change of heart uh, before he, he sets off on his happy trails, to Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol, right, who, who is long deceased and, and bearing the chains of his sins, to the big city ex-boyfriend in the Hallmark movies who decides to go back to the big city unchanged, right? And, and you know, leaving, leaving behind the, the woman that was his fiance or, or whatever. And so uh, I wanted to think about those today because, as I mentioned in the pre-show, we're going to we're gonna be talking about sort of the original Christmas Grinch, uh, Herod the Great, uh, a man who certainly had every opportunity to be changed and to encounter uh, the baby Jesus, I've said at other times that Herod is the character who's, who features the largest in the Christmas stories in both Luke and Matthew, actually, who's not in the nativity scene, right? He's the one that didn't even, that never makes it to the manger. And so I want to talk about him today. I want to talk about what kept him from that. Uh, and I want to ask along the way, because it is New Year's, because it is 2023, uh, because it is good if we're going to talk about change to begin with some honest self-reflection, I want to ask if it's possible that we might be more like Herod than we originally thought. And if it's possible that when we take a good, honest look at Herod, if we might be able to see some uncomfortable truths about ourselves that are some things that we can make commitments to allow Jesus to change in us as we begin this new year. So uh, in that spirit, I want to turn it back over to Christina and Chanel uh, and begin our new year with a song that is about the transformative power of uh, resurrection. And so uh, I want to invite you to uh, experience that with me, to celebrate with us. And so would you stand with me wherever you are? Again, of course, obviously, unless that you're unable or it's unsafe. And uh, let's, let's begin worship. Today is, as I said earlier, in addition to being New Year's Day, it's also the eighth day of Christmas, which means it's the final Sunday of our Advent and Christmas series, which this year we called I'll Be Home for Christmas. So a lot of what we're celebrating today is what it means that Jesus has been born, that Jesus has come among us. And uh, as we said throughout the Advent season, Advent is a way for the church to anticipate Jesus's return by celebrating Jesus's first arrival uh, on Christmas. 
And so we've been asking throughout the the series, I'll Be Home for Christmas, uh, what does it look like when Jesus returns? And one uh, one of the big themes that we talked about was that there's this tension, I think, in our holiday celebrations between escapism, this desire to, you know, like uh, sort of bury ourselves in sentimentality and ignore the, the troubles and pains of the, the world and of our lives, uh, and then the, you know, the reality that a lot of us live in, which is a world that uh, is, is deeply hurt and has a lot of pain in it. And uh, it, it's sometimes hard to know how to celebrate Christmas while acknowledging that reality. And so I, we're going to carry that into this final, uh, final message today of this series and the first message of our new year by talking about uh, what it might mean that Jesus' arrival could be something that we find threatening or uh, something to be afraid of, which I know sounds a little silly to most of us, particularly if you came to church on New Year's Sunday, right? The idea that we would not be excited about Jesus' return, the idea that when he arrives, we would be people who would find ourselves on the wrong side of his arrival, And yet, uh, when he arrived the first time, that was actually the case for a lot of people who would have said that they were God's people, Uh, people who would have said that they were on the right side of everything. And then it turned out that when God actually showed up among them, uh, that wasn't true, Uh, that that they had built their lives around some false understandings of who God is, of who they are, of how the world worked. And uh, it's it's, it's a lot of what led to Jesus's crucifixion. But but we're going to back all the way up to his birth today. And we're going to talk about uh, that sort of original Grinch of the Christmas story, Herod. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with us to Matthew chapter 2. As you're turning to Matthew 2, though, uh, I think it's important to note that I was was actually telling our team this when we were in our pre-worship huddle. Um, Herod is the probably the biggest character in both Luke and Matthew's Christmas stories, who is just completely absent from most of our Christmas celebrations, like he's obviously not in our nativity scenes or any of that kind of stuff. And I get it, right? Because no one, no one wants to talk about the guy that tried to kill baby Jesus. Uh, so I understand it. And yet, I think when we leave Herod out, we actually miss a big part of what Matthew and Luke were both doing. So, so I want to just show you how Luke begins his Christmas story, because I want you to notice how deeply grounded in the politics of his day it was. So this is Luke 2, verse 1. At that time, the time when Jesus was born, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, this was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Okay, So you have Caesar Augustus, Roman Empire, Quirinius being the governor of Syria. There are all of these names that largely mean nothing to us today, and yet they set the framework for Luke's whole story. And for Luke, and again for Matthew, who was on the global stage mattered greatly. They understood that Jesus' birth was not just something that happened uh, on, you know, in a cute little uh, barn scene or whatever with like uh, fluffy animals around, and, and it was adorable, right? They understood that Jesus' birth had global implications. And you can feel that if you know a lot of the tensions that are sort of the backdrop 
to Matthew's account of Herod. Uh, now, again, I say this because if you were an ancient reader of Matthew's gospel, the people that it was originally written for, this would have been recent history. You know, sort of the way we talk about, like, I don't know, Nixon and Reagan and that kind of stuff, right? Like, a few people alive who maybe remembered kind of the tail end of it. Certainly your parents and your grandparents would have been alive during a lot of this. Um, for us, it's ancient history, and a lot of us just don't even know it. So the only, the only thing we know about Herod is what comes to us from Matthew. We don't know the backdrop. So today I want to talk a little bit about the backdrop. All right? Herod was an old man by the time Jesus was born. He only had a few years left to live. He didn't know that yet, right, obviously. But, but he, he, he did not live much longer after Jesus was born. Okay, uh, he had been ruling in Israel as the king of the Jews, his title that Rome gave him, for uh, probably about 50 years. Okay, and Herod was born into and grew up in an Israel that was consumed with war. So probably the best way for us as modern uh, people to think about uh, the state of politics in Judea at the time of Herod the Great is to think about Vietnam in the late 20th century, okay? So go ahead and put the map up. All right, so we have the Roman Empire in red there, and then that blue empire there is Parthia. So you can kind of think of them like the U.S. and Russia during the Cold War, right? They were the two big global superpowers, and they were constantly getting in these little skirmishes where they would, you know, just sort of like throw soldiers at each other and see if one of them was weaker, and they never, they, you know, the borders might have shifted a little bit here and there, but for the most part, um, they were just sort of locked in this kind of, again, like a Cold War. <clears throat> and so, you know, in the, in the Cold War in the 20th century, neither U.S. nor Russia wanted to attack each other directly because it was that whole mutually assured destruction thing, right? This will erupt into another global war, except now we have nuclear weapons and it will be catastrophic for both of us. So what we did instead was wage these sort of client wars, right, in Afghanistan and Vietnam and all these kind of other places where we were sort of backing other troops and funding uh, you know, funneling money and weapons to other armies, and then they would fight, and, and then we could, you know, say it wasn't us, but, but it was us, right? And Russia was doing the same thing. Well, that's exactly, actually, what was happening in Judea. Uh, Judea was right there, you can see right there on the Mediterranean Sea, a very important access for ports and all that kind of stuff, and that narrow strip of land connecting them to Egypt and all of that. Everyone wanted to control Judea, and when Herod was a kid, it was engulfed in a civil war because Parthia had sponsored a coup to try to kick out the Roman-backed Hasmoneans, right? And again, this is a lot of hate, but like that, Herod was born into that, and he grew up in that. And by the time he was put on the throne and declared king of the Jews, it was understood that he was Rome's puppet king. And his job was to keep peace and to keep his nation, Israel, Judea, right, loyal to Rome. Okay, so his job, he was like that manager that the, the boss is like, just, I just don't want to hear any problems, right? I don't care what you do to handle it. I just, if it gets to my desk, you're in trouble, right? That was sort of Herod's goal, right? Caesar Augustus didn't want to hear about it, okay? His job was to keep the peace, do whatever he needed to do to keep things under control, make sure that Parthia was not making any moves, and if Caesar ever heard about it, Herod was going to be in trouble because he has one job. Now, here's the crazy thing. For 30 years, Herod did it. 
after like a half a century of infighting and civil war and that, that sort of like ancient Cold War being played out in his home, Herod actually managed to create peace. And for 30 years before the birth of Jesus, they had peace in Judea. Which is no small feat in that day. Okay? All of, for all of the bad things we can say about Herod, and we can and we will, okay? For all of that, he did manage to keep peace for 30 years. Then, some people showed up. Let's read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, about that time, some wise men, now the actual word here, we're going to come back to it's magoi, okay, magicians, magoi, from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Because we saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Okay, so Herod has kept peace for Rome for 30 years. The Parthians, who are in which direction? East. Have been pretty quiet. Maybe too quiet. And then some people show up. Now, Matthew uses this word, this Greek word, magoi. It's where we get our word magicians from. Okay, But it was actually a specific term that was used of this particular institution in the Parthian Empire that were sort of like, uh, we would call them like court astrologers. Okay, People who read the stars and advised the king on what he was to do based on, you know, based on the heavens. Okay? So these Parthians show up from the east in the palace because, I mean, where else would you look for a new king, right? That kings are born in palaces. And they say, we've read the stars and we've seen that a new king of the Jews has been born and we have come to worship him. Now, we hear this as Jesus is the son of God and you're supposed to worship God, so they were coming to worship God. They did not know Jesus was God. They did not care about the God of the Jews. They had their own gods, right? What they meant was, we've come seeking an alliance. There's a new regime. There's a new ruler. And this is Parthia's chance to sneak in and take this prime piece of land back for our empire. Okay, we failed a couple generations ago, we're going to try it again. Herod panics. Why? Well, because he can't move directly against Parthia. They're a giant empire, right? He's a teeny bitty little country. But he also knows that word is going to get back to Caesar Augustus that he's been meeting with a rival diplomatic envoy. Now, I don't know if he really knew that or if he was just paranoid, but like, you know, err on the side of caution, you know, assume he's going to find out. It's that, was I saying? You're not paranoid if they're actually out to get you, right? So Herod did survive numerous attempts on his life. So yeah, was he paranoid? Was he just like really good at not dying? Either way, this was catastrophic for Herod. He was convinced that this could spell the end of the 30 years of peace that he had achieved. So, now, I want to pause for a moment because I'm willing to bet your head's spinning a little bit. And you're wondering, like, what about the three guys with the camels in my nativity scene? 
right? This doesn't feel like that story. And it's not. That's what I'm saying, right? When we take Herod out of the story, we miss what was actually going on here, which is that this is a, this is a global story. This is a story about global superpowers being rocked, the status quo in the known world being shifted because of the birth of a little baby. Because of Jesus' arrival in the world, the geopolitics are now unbalanced. And it's all coming to a head in this little itty-bitty country that were it not where it is in the world, no one would care about. And this global drama is being played out in this little itty-bitty village that's only claim to fame is that they had a famous guy who became king who was born there like 500 years ago. Like I said before, it's right when you're driving through West Texas and you see like, uh, you know, Texas State Champs, 1935. And you're like, I mean, good job, I guess. That's, you know, wish something else had happened since then. But right, that's, that's Bethlehem. No one cared about Bethlehem. And yet this poor couple who has this scandalous baby in this forgotten out-of-the-way town in this little backwater country that only matters because of where it's located, this is how God has chosen to oppose the empires of the world. This is how God has chosen to arrive among us. This is the Christmas story. And so before we go any further, I want to invite our worship team back up because I just want us to kind of sit with and sing about uh, just how incredible it is that this is the way God chose to come among us. And the stakes that are facing us as we finish the rest of Herod's story. What happens next? These, this Parthian envoy shows up, Herod panics, and he comes up with a plan. Uh, he, he, he goes to, because again, they're wanting to know where the king is, right? Where's this newborn king of the Jews? Herod doesn't know. He goes and consults his uh, his scholars, and they're like, well, you know, according to, the, according to the prophecies, maybe Bethlehem? So Herod goes back to the, the envoy, and he says, hey, good news, it's in Bethlehem, it's right down the street. Uh, would you, you know, when, once you find him, would you come back and tell me? Because I'd love to go and worship him also. It's such good news. Uh, and then they are warned in a dream not to go back that way. So they, they just kind of jet out the other direction. And when word gets back to Herod that, that he's lost them, he flies into a panic, into a rage. And so here's the, here's the part of the story that uh, I think is the main reason we avoid this, right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's known in church literature as the slaughter of the innocents. And it's Herod's, it's his, it's his dramatic solution to his problem. So let's read in verses 16 through 18 of Matthew chapter 2. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. So he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal actions fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are already dead. Now, I want to come back. I, I, the last thing I want to do today is minimize the horror of what's happening here. But, you know, I was talking with Christina in the pre-show about, like, this Herod that I sort of encountered when I went to Israel, who is this amazing builder and this genius 
uh, political maneuver and all of this stuff. And so then I come back to the story of Matthew, and I'm like, what, how do, like, how does that guy do this? Right? This just seems like such a mustache-twirling, cartoon villain sort of plan. And it just doesn't seem like the guy that was, yeah, like obviously a little Looney Tunes, but in like a really crafty, clever way, right? Not in like a super villainy kind of way. And so I, you know, I went and did some digging, and I just want, I want you to do a little, a little thought experiment with me, okay? Think in your head, if you've heard this story before, um, like how many kids are we talking about here, right? If you're just thinking about the story, are we talking about like a hundred, a few thousand, right? How many, how many boys, two years old and under, would there have been in Bethlehem at the time Jesus was born? Uh, I, I didn't know, right? The Bible certainly doesn't say. Uh, but in my head, I guess it was always just like, you know, thousands of, th- thousands of kids. And so I, I did a bunch of digging. And, you know, we know like the, the rough population of Judea at the time, the rough population of Bethlehem at the time, and, you know, the people much smarter than I am who have much more training in these areas, they do all that kind of stuff, like, you know, birth rates and all this. And, and, and what they came to was probably somewhere between six and ten kids. Six and ten boys who were two years old or under. So at the high end, ten, so we're just going to say ten, right? Now, again, I want to pause here. Does saying it was only ten kids, not a hundred kids or a thousand kids make it less monstrous? No, it doesn't. Okay, it doesn't. But I think it does change a little bit of the calculus that Herod was doing. Okay, Herod had grown up in a nation that was torn apart by war. He knew firsthand, he had lived firsthand, he had led in battle firsthand what happened when his country was caught in a dust-up between the two great superpowers. And he had obtained 30 years of peace. And I don't know that it matters whether he did it primarily for himself or for the good of his people, because 30 years of peace is 30 years of peace. That's 30 years of people coming home every night and sons not going off to war and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't know that a lot of the, the regular folk cared so much whether Herod was doing it out of selfish ambition or for their, for their good first. And yet now comes this pivotal moment where Herod feels trapped between Rome and Parthia yet again. And he can see the dogs of war descending upon his little nation yet again. And he has, to do, he has to do some math, right? Ten kids now or a few thousand kids over the next several years as this war breaks out again, as this Cold War turns hot. See, I, I just don't think it was that hard for Herod because these kids were from Bethlehem, a little no-name place in the backwoods of nowhere. They managed to produce one interesting person 500 years ago, King David, you know? What's the chance that any of these kids are going to grow up and amount to anything? What's the chance that any of them are going to be leaders on the global stage? What's the chance that any of them are going to matter the way Herod matters, the way Caesar and the emperor of Parthia matter, right? Will the world really miss these 10 kids? Or is it possible that a small calculated sacrifice now might be for the so-called greater good? Now, again, I would like to make it clear, I think Herod made the wrong decision. 
Okay? I don't think it's ever acceptable to sacrifice kids for any reason. But I understand how Herod can make that calculus. I understand the decisions that might have led him there. And here's what I think is ultimately so bad about it. For the sake of his own comfort and security and safety, Herod chose to make other people pay the price. These 10 boys in Bethlehem did not have a say. They did not volunteer. Their parents were not consulted. Herod simply made the decision. In order for me and mine to be safe, they will pay the price. And friends, that is the logic of empire, right? That, that some more vulnerable population will bear the burden of my safety and security, of my flourishing. That was Rome's attitude. That was Parthia's attitude. That was Babylon's attitude. And I think far too often it's our attitude. I think the most direct comparison is our own, in this country, our own drone, drone warfare program, which we say keeps us safe, right? It eliminates terrorists. It keeps our soldiers from having to go into combat. And yet, our drone program is, is responsible for more than 2,000 civilian deaths and over 500 child deaths. So at this point, our body count is significantly higher than Herod's. And yet most of us don't think about that or lose a wink of sleep. We ignore it because who cares about that part of the world? We don't know them. We don't know those people. We don't know those kids. They're faceless. They're nameless. They're collateral damage. And we and ours are safe and secure. So they can pay the price, and we don't have to think about it. I think there are a lot of other ways that we don't think about how our comfort and our flourishing and our sense of security comes at the expense of people who are more vulnerable from us. Uh, and I'm the first, I, listen, uh, I guess I should have prefaced this whole sermon by saying I have a lot of problems and not a lot of answers. Right? I think this is a really difficult question because we live at the heart of empire. Right, We live in the wealthiest country in the world that has the highest percentage of wealth in the entire world. And much of the wealth that we have comes at the expense of people all over the globe who are more vulnerable and people in our own country who are more vulnerable. And so uh, I, if you're anything like me, when you start looking at these difficult truths, uh, I start to feel a lot of guilt a lot of shame, a sense of helplessness, a sense of feeling overwhelmed, a sense of maybe saying like, wait, I come to church to not think about this stuff, not think about it, why are you doing this to me, right? And so I want to offer just a couple of observations. One, um, you're going to laugh at me, but when I lived in Dayton, Ohio, the, like half the city is named for this guy, Charles Kettering, who invented the catalytic converter, so he's like a billionaire, or what was, he's dead now, Right? But um, he has this quote that was on one of their sculpture parks that I've never forgotten because I've found it so helpful. Where he says, a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. And what I take from that in this particular situation is that the longer we ignore this reality, the worse it gets, not the better, right? This is not something that goes away when we ignore it. This is a, this is a deep, essential problem of sin 
in the nature of humanity, in the nature of empire. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we're able to define it well, and the more we're able to come up with some ways to resist and to reject. So I just want to say, I guess, uh, if you're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable too. It's okay. Okay, if you're not uncomfortable, I'm actually a little more worried about you. Uh, <laughs> we need to maybe have some deeper conversations. Uh, so if you're uncomfortable, it's okay. And I will commit to you that I will continue to have this conversation if you will, right? Um, and, and I think the more we can be a whole community of people who wrestles with this issue, who asks, what does it mean to be a church that refuses to place the burden of our flourishing on the, the most vulnerable among us, but instead chooses to stand with those folks? and chooses to shoulder some of the burden that has been placed on them unfairly and unjustly, uh, I think that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And, and I have a suspicion that's the kind of church a lot of you want to be a part of too. That's why you're here. And so as we are moving into the new year, I just want to offer uh, an invitation to be that kind of a church, an invitation for, to say, yeah, you know what? In 2023, we want to seek out the most vulnerable in our communities, right? Whether that's here in Rowlett, whether that's all of the places that our virtual congregation are scattered, you know, from Boston to Cleveland to Indiana to Portland, to, you know, everywhere we are, down in Arizona, over in Virginia. Um, and I want to ask, like, I want, us to, I want us to ask together, what does it look like for us to reject the path of Herod and instead to embrace the, uh, the way of Jesus, right? Which is that he leaves heaven to come among the most vulnerable. Honestly, I think the most troubling verse in, uh, in all of that story that we read today is where it says, Herod was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Because I think most of the time, we're not even Herod, we're the rest of Jerusalem. We're not even making the painful decisions. We're not even making the bad decisions. We're just closing our eyes and pretending that we don't have to live with them. Right? Say what you will about Herod. He at least made the decision. It was an evil decision. But he wasn't the one that pretended like it wasn't a problem and let someone else do his dirty work. And I'm afraid that far too often that's, what, that's, that, that's true of me. Right? That I, I, I live with privilege that comes at someone else's expense and I just pretend it's not true because it makes me feel bad. I know that's heavy. I know that's a lot today. But I think the, reasons Herod, the reason Herod is in the Christmas story is so that we can have these sorts of introspective, self-reflective times. What does it look like for us to reject the way of Herod? to reject the way of the rest of Jerusalem and to stand with Jesus and to stand with the most vulnerable. So I want to bring us into a time of communion and I just want to remind you that even in the midst of this incredibly difficult conversation, uh, Jesus invites us to this table. He invites us to come with him. He doesn't say, uh, bring me all of your answers to all of these thorny, difficult questions and I'll decide after reading your essays whether or not you get to have communion. Right? He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And that comes to this table. So if, if you are willing to do that, then you, you have a seat at the table. Jesus opens the table and he says, come with me. And that's all that's required is for you to say yes. And so as, as always here, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine. I'm going to ask you to think about who the marginalized and the vulnerable are in your orbits and in your life. 
uh, and what it looks like for you, how God might be calling you in this next year to stand with those folks, both individually and as a church. Um, because as we learned from the Christmas story, right, it doesn't take a, a giant mega church with a bajillion dollar budget and all of that to, to change things. Uh, change happens in these small, out-of-the-way places with people who are faithful to say yes to what God is doing. So with that in mind, let's turn to uh, our prayer of examine. When, that's, when those questions are done, I'll pray for all of us, and we'll come to the table together. Here's the first question I want you to consider. Who do I encounter who is marginalized or vulnerable? Now, how am I tempted to ignore those folks that God has brought into my life in the name of my own comfort or security? Finally, how is God calling me to be present to them in this next year? Pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning that we might look at this person who is supposed to be a king after your own heart and yet instead uh, stood with the likes of Caesar Augustus. A person who, rather than following your call to protect the vulnerable and to stand with those uh, who slip through the cracks, uh, instead he, he put his own insecurities and burdens on them as a way to protect himself and those that he considered his people. We rightly recoil from his example. We are rightly horrified by the actions that he took, and yet we have seen this morning how we might be more like him than it's comfortable for us to admit. And so we confess that we come to your communion table this morning with trepidation, with trembling, confessing that we 
far too often failed to be the people you called us to be. And yet, on this first day of our new year, on this eighth day of Christmas, we receive from you not condemnation and judgment, but welcome and love and healing and hope. Make us a people who stands with the vulnerable and the marginalized. Uh, Give us shoulders that can bear their burden with them. That we might be a church that becomes really, really good at the practice of resisting that impulse to empire. That becomes really, really good at seeing how it's functioning in our world. Because when you came on that first Christmas all those years ago, you didn't come... Uh, in this isolated, individualistic sort of way, you came to challenge the, the, the whole world. And so we want to be that kind of a church. Thank you so much for gathering us this morning. Thank you for bringing us to your table. And as we receive these wafers and this juice or whatever elements we've been able to gather, we pray they would be a spiritual food. And that in receiving them, we too might receive the grace that we need to be the church that you call us to be in 2023. We love you so much, and we thank you for gathering us this morning. We pray these things, and now we receive this meal in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread with his disciples, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink, and as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returned. Uh, Catalyst, as you're going today, I wanted to remind you one more time about our Advent and Christmas giving project for uh, Vita Victoriosa. You can, uh, we've been collecting for them uh, things that will be helpful for their ministry. That includes both books, kids' books, everything from, you know, the books for real little kids up to chapter books for kids that are a little bit older in Spanish, and then also some dry erase tablets. Teresa brought some of those in today, so thank you, Teresa. Obviously, if you're virtual and you don't want to ship that stuff, you can, or if you're here and you didn't have time to go shop for those kinds of things, you can also uh, give through our Secure Giving app and give uh, to the Advent offering. It's one of the, the things you can choose there. But I want to say thank you to all of you who uh, gave last year in 2022 and uh, helped us uh, keep, keep moving forward as well. We really appreciate you. And, uh, you know, if that's a New Year's resolution for you also, you can, you know, find the the giving app is in the YouTube description. And uh, we have, you know, signs all over the the building as well. Um, But again, thank you to all of you who are continuing to serve in that way. And uh, for those of you in the building also, thank you for uh, your patience as we're sort of figuring out where to put the preschool and where, you know, how all of our stuff is going to mix into there. Uh, They open this week. So we've been kind of trying to get the last push there uh, done with with that, and so we may have we may have a little bit of extra uh, stuff in here for a week or two as we figure out where to put all that. But thank you for your patience, uh, virtual folks. Just trust me; it's starting to look a little bit like a garage sale in here. There's stuff everywhere, but uh, we're we're happy to be inconvenienced as we make room for them. We're really excited for for how they're going to be serving the community uh, right out of our building as well. So, as you're going today, Catalyst. Uh, again, I just I feel like I. I I know how heavy this message about Herod is. Uh, I, I, have, I have felt it ever, you know, ever since that trip when I was like realizing some of the stuff about him and seeing more of myself reflected in him that I was comfortable with. And so I just want to encourage you and remind you that as we engage this 
difficult stuff and as we see these uncomfortable truths about ourselves, that none of that changes God's posture towards us. God already knew all of that about us when God welcomed us uh, to be a part of Catalyst, to be a part of uh, the table fellowship that we share together. And so uh, though it is painful, though it is difficult, uh, we can do these things because we know that God is with us and because that God already loves us and already has forgiven us. And so if we will trust that love and rest in the confidence that, that brings, we can respond in faith and we can ask these difficult questions together. And I think that's the path towards us truly being a church that has an impact that far outstrips uh, our gathering here together because uh, God is the one who is doing that then. So I want to send you with that encouragement this morning. Would you stand with me as I offer us a blessing? Uh, Cattles, would you go into this new year unafraid of anything, uh, even looking into our own spirits and facing uh, the, the surprising places within us where, where we might be more like uh, Herod or some of the other villains of Scripture than we realize? Would you be able to have confidence in that because the God who created you and called you already knew those things and loves you and forgives you and is working through the power of God's Holy Spirit to rescue and restore us? Go into 2023 confident that you are loved and that God is continuing to conform us into the image of Jesus. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll see you next week.